Well, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 6, actually. Uh, be reading verses 19 to chapter 7, verse 10. We are in the thick of it <laughs> in the book of Hebrews. And so maybe you haven't been here the whole time, and that's okay because I'll give a little bit of a review. But we are in the part today where earlier in the book, the author of the book of Hebrews says, I can't go there because you're too immature. He kind of, he chastises them for being immature. And then he gives them the hope of Jesus as an anchor. And then he says, now I can go on and get to the heavy duty stuff. So we're in the mix of the heavy duty stuff, which I would say is probably all of Hebrews, but... Today we'll be talking about the priestly order of Melchizedek. You know, I never had any trouble saying Melchizedek until this time going through the book of Hebrews. For some reason, I want to say it differently, but I'll try not to do that. I'll try to say Melchizedek and get it out, be able to get it out. So how's everyone doing? Good? Good. Good. Looking to you, forward to uh, Father's Day and the dinner and all that. I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. But this is an important section of a scripture for us, and I hope you have your notes. If you don't, there should be some available. You have notes on one side. On the other side, there's a little game that you can play, and that's designed for after the service, not during the service. <laughs> but uh, it's designed for after the service, and notice I put up here diagonal and backward words are in this, so it gets a little bit harder. You know, I have not put those in the last time, so... There will be diagonal words, there will be backward, backward words, uh, but we need time to meditate on God's word, don't we? You know, sometimes a, a session like this, we go about 30 minutes, 35, 40 minutes sometimes. It's really just not long enough to get everything that you want to get out of scripture. So this is just a reminder and a way of you going back maybe in the afternoon and looking over the scripture again and seeing how God wants to speak to you directly. We know that Jesus is better, amen? Jesus is greater. That's what this whole series has been about. Jesus is greater. He's greater than the old prophets of old in the Old Testament. Even ones like Moses, whom the people of Israel revered. Jesus is better also than all of the mighty angels. And I would say he's better than all of them put together. Stronger than all of them put together. He's better than Moses and the Old Testament law. He brings a new covenant. The old covenant is passing away and the new covenant is coming, which is better. He offers a better rest than Joshua offered to the people going into Canaan. There was a certain amount of rest that they did achieve when they went into Canaan. They conquered the land and they had a type of rest. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says there is a greater rest than that to come as well, and that's through Jesus Christ. He also, and I don't think I've really mentioned this before in my little review, but he, I think the, by insinuation, he also says that Jesus is better than the rest of the world, right? So the, the people of Israel wanted to go back to Exodus, to Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They thought it was too hard out there in the desert. They wanted to go back. 
And as we know, most of us know, Egypt symbolizes the world, the things of the world, the gold, the money, the material wealth. But he says Jesus is better than the world. And then he starts to get in saying that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood and that Jesus is of the priestly order of Melchizedek. And that's when he has to stop and he says, you're too immature for this. You need to go back. You need to have milk. You need to grow in your faith before we can go on. And we've come kind of full circle. He says, you can't go on to talk about this because you're too immature. And probably some of you are not really saved at all. And that's indicated by the fact that you want to go back. You want to go back to Judaism. You want to go back to the sacrifices. You feel unsure of your salvation. You're, you're tending to drift away from your salvation. And you're neglecting your salvation. He says you are stuck on the foundational principles and you're not moving on in the faith. You're not maturing in any way. You lack spiritual discernment. You think you're pretty smart, but you can't even weigh the good and bad of something. And ultimately, you are becoming sluggish in the faith. I think that's a pretty good, I'm not trying to be too harsh, and I'm not saying this is true about our church, but I think that's a pretty good description of the church in America. Wanting to go back, wanting to go to something different, not wanting to stick out like a sore throat, sore thumb because of their beliefs. Most of them lack spiritual discernment. They have questions about what is even right and wrong, what is even the gospel, and they're sluggish in their faith. And so the author of the book of Hebrews, still in our review session here, says, turn to Jesus, our anchor of our soul. We are to turn to Jesus. Don't turn back but turn to Jesus, the anchor of our soul. He has gone before us. He has made the way. He has become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's that term again. So today, this is it. This is the deep stuff, the beginning of the deep stuff that he's talking about. So have your pencils out. Write down some notes. Write down some questions that you have. I'd be, I would be so happy if someone like text me or send me an email message and said, I don't understand what you said about this. Could you explain it to me a little bit clearer? And I'd either say, well, I'll have to do some research or I'll give you an answer, but that would, that would make my day if someone would do that. So I, I like the questions, but this is the deep stuff. This is the deeper stuff that he's talking about. And it, it will probably continue on for several chapters, not just this chapter. So now we're up to reading our scripture for today. So let's go ahead and stand. We're going to read uh, not only verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7, but we're going to kind of dip back into chapter 6 at verse 19 and kind of grab that and take it along with us, the encouraging part. And the writer, he says, we have this as an unsure, uh, we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that endures, enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
priest of the Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have commandments in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from uh, his descent received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that he is inferior, that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father, we thank so much for these words, and they're kind of twisty, turny words. They're, at first, when we read them, maybe difficult for us to understand, and we pray that you'd help us just to slow down a little bit to understand this important part of scripture because it really does affect our life today. Even though we're speaking of priests and we don't normally think of priests, uh, help us to gain information from this and knowledge that we might be more like Jesus Christ and understand these deeper truths. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. So we've heard about Melchizedek before. It was in chapter 5. And there it was quoted from Psalm 110. Uh, really the word Melchizedek, the, the person of Melchizedek is only mentioned a few times in the Bible. Uh, first of all, in Genesis he's mentioned. When he comes out and meets Abraham. Now Abraham had been at war with these four kings. These four kings had been going around the neighborhood, so to speak, and conquering everyone. And they conquered Sodom, which is where Lot lived, who was the nephew of Abraham, right? The nephew of Abraham. And so Abraham said, that's enough. We're going to have to do something. So he gathers, I think it was 318 men of his crack fighting men. And he goes and defeats these kings and gets all of their spoils. And so he's coming back to Jerusalem and Melchizedek, or going back to his home, Melchizedek comes out from a place called Salem, which we believe is Jerusalem. And there, Abraham offers him a tenth of the spoils. And so we wonder who this Melchizedek is because the description is kind of confusing, isn't it? it? At least it's confusing to me and it's been confusing to people ever since these words were written. Who is this Melchizedek? Is he a man? Is he Jesus Christ in the flesh? Is he an angel? And you can kind of see why they might think that, right? Because this scripture says that Melchizedek has no mother or father or genealogy, that he, is a, he continues as a priest forever, 
it seems as though he has qualities about him that make him greater than just a man. And so some people have proposed that he is an angel. Uh, I don't think that he is an angel because uh, it's only a man who can be a priest and represent that person to God. And so I kind of rule out that he was an angel. Some people say, well, this is a, what you would call a Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the Old Testament, uh, you'll hear the term the angel of the Lord, and it actually refers to an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before his birth as the Son of God. That seems like a, a pretty good possibility to me, but it does say that in this description of Melchizedek that he is a man. It says that he resembles the Son of God. It doesn't say that he is the Son of God. And so that leaves us with that he is just a man. But that's not very satisfying in answer either because he seems to have these qualities of no mother, no father, no genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life, and he continues as a priest forever. So you gotta, I guess, kind of decide somewhere what he is or who he is. And my interpretation, I've finally come, although I'm not really happy with it all the time, is that I come down on the side that he is a man. And people explain these other attributes as kind of literary figures. So Melchizedek, they probably did not know who his mother and father were. They did not know his genealogy. And so he makes a good type or symbol of the one who is to come, Jesus Christ, who actually is from eternity to eternity. So they would say the author picked this person, Melchizedek, because he did not have a gene genealogy that was known. And that translate to be a, a picture of the Christ who is to come, who would be eternal. So that's my best explanation, although it's not a very good one. And I'm sure we'll wrestle with that, but ultimately it doesn't have a whole lot to do with how we interpret this rest of this scripture, because Melchizedek is just a type of the one who is to come, Jesus Christ, who is to come and fulfill this type. Does that make sense? So we're not talking about the Melchizedekian order being superior to Christ. We're saying that he is a type of the Christ who has come, and Christ is superior even than Melchizedek. And so the mess this message today really is that there is a greater priesthood and that is the priesthood of Jesus, then the Levitical priesthood that is required to secure our salvation one after the order of Melchizedek. Is that clear as mud? <laughs> is that kind of sort of clear? This Melchizedekian order is a type that is going to show us ultimately what the priesthood of Jesus Christ is going to be. It's the priesthood of Jesus Christ that saves us. But he's going to be talking a lot about Melchizedek as being the example for this. And so uh, in Hebrews chapter 5, we learn this very important aspect of Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. 
uh, about Jesus Christ, it says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So priests typically didn't come from uh, any different line than the line of Aaron, right? That was the Levitical priesthood. So people probably would expect that Jesus would be from the line of Aaron or the line of Levi. But he's, he's not, right? He's from the tribe of Judah. So he had to be from the order of Melchizedek because with a new covenant, the old passes away and the new comes, there must be a change of priesthood. That, that tells us right in the scripture uh, that we'll probably read for next week. So let's kind of step back and give that time to kind of digest and think about what is a priest anyway. I mean, we typically don't think of priests, we think of pastors. Maybe if we have a Catholic background, we might think of a priest. We, may, we think of people in long, long robes. They got a collar, they have a white collar, and they uh, administer the sacraments, uh, the holy water. Uh, they take care of the church, if it's a Catholic church. And so that's probably not a real good example of what we're talking about as far as an Old Testament priest during that time. The word priest actually comes from the word that means bridge builder, a bridge builder, someone who, who will build a bridge from one place to another. Another good word for that is he is a mediator. So I don't know if anyone ever has been in a union or had disagreements within your union. You usually have a mediator come in who helps settle that, that dispute. And that's really what Jesus has done and what Melchizedek, you know, does as a priest. Uh, obviously, Jesus is the one who mediated for us between God. First Timothy 2.5 tells us that. It says there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this idea of a priest is that they are a bridge builder, they are a mediator. They are one who brings two warring factions together for peace. So they stand in between both opposing sides and they mediate, they work together, communicate in such a way with both that they bring them together in peace. That's what the Old Testament priests were actually designed to do. They would stand between the people and God. God wanted to have a relationship with them. The only way that he could do that at that time was through the tabernacle and the system of sacrifices that were set up. And so these priests, day after day, would offer sacrifices for the people. They represented man, and, the, uh, and they had sin of their own that, that had to be dealt with. They had to deal gently with men, but they must offer sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, but for their sins as well. These priests were God-appointed by lineage. They were born into the tribe of Levi, and they kind of inherited their position as priests. So how does the Levitical priesthood stack up as far as accomplishing what they're supposed to do? Their goal is to bring us into a relationship with God. How does it stack up? Well, not very well. The Levitical priesthood, first of all, was just a national priesthood. Have you ever thought about this? <laughs> this whole sacrificial system back in the Old Testament was only for the Jews, right? 
only for the Jews. All the sacrifices, the Day of Atonement was only for the Jews. It wasn't for the rest of the people. So that is one, that is one downfall of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system is that it, it only pertained to the nation of Israel and not to the whole world. Secondly, the priests were to some extent subject of the king, right? So in Israel, there were, later on in Israel, there were kings and there were priests both. So it's kind of like having two bosses at the same time. You guys ever had two bosses at the same time? You got to try to please one, you got to try to please the other. That's kind of how the people felt about it. They had to please the king, they also had to please the priest, and sometimes that caused conflict. So that was not one of the best redeeming qualities of the priesthood of the Old Testament. <coughs> Were the Levitical priests perfect themselves? No. No, they weren't. They, they sinned themselves, right? They had to offer sins for themselves before they could go and offer it for the people. Otherwise, that sacrifice for the people would not be acceptable. And so they had to make sure that their mind was clear, that they had performed the right sacrifices, and that had been properly before they could actually do it for the people. One more thing. The, Levit the Levitical priesthood had a limited time for service. They kept dying. <laughs> they kept dying. And so someone would have to continually take their place. And as they were offering sacrifices, they would have to do, the, do it over and over and over again. But just think about our everyday life and how we live and how often we sin in our lives, whether it's a sin of commission or it's a sin of omission. You know, there's things that we're commanded to do, there's things we're commanded not to do. And I would say we break something every day. They would have to be offering sacrifices continually. And in a sense, no one would have any real assurance or a clear conscience because they'd always be wondering, you know, what's going to happen next? Has my sacrifice been sufficient or not? Well, let's turn to this Melchizedekian order, priesthood, and why is it better? And it's better because it's like Jesus' priesthood, or Jesus is like his. We mentioned that Melchizedek was a type of Christ who would come. He was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But Melchizedek's service was to all of mankind, not just the nation of Israel. And you may say, well, where did, where did you get that? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says that he is king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, and he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That term there, the most high God, is really a good indication that Melchizedek was a priest not only for the nation of Israel but for all of the earth. Normally, in a sentence like that, they might have said a priest of the Lord God or Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah is the personal name God gave to the people of Israel to call him by. They were supposed to call him by Yahweh. And yet in this, he calls him the Most High God. So it shows that Melchizedek's fear of influence 
exceeded that of the people of Israel and extended to all of the world. This is an important thing, right? This fits in with what we believe about Abraham and his covenant. Abraham was selected to be a blessing to all of the nations. Our mandate from the Lord Jesus Christ is to go and make disciples of all nations, not just the Jews, right? We don't just go to the Jews, we go to everyone. Melchizedek was also both priest and king. So no, no conflict here about which one do you obey. This Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. And Jesus is too, by the way, right? Jesus is a priest and a king and a prophet. This is something that a Levitical priest could never be. They never crossed that threshold. A Levitical priest could never be a king and a king could not be a priest. It was forbidden by law. We know that he is king because, we know that he is priest because he received uh, tithes from Abraham and in a sense from Levi. We know that he is king because he blessed Abraham and Abraham showed him obedience to everything that he was commanded by him. And so Jesus as, or Melchizedek as this priest can represent both sides. And Jesus can represent both sides as well. He is both man, he is also God in the flesh. And so he makes the perfect mediator. Melchizedek became a priest by the appointment of God. He didn't name himself priest or king, but he was appointed by God. And Melchizedek, because of the language used about his mother and father and his genealogy, symbolizes the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. Melchizedek symbolizes the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. That's a very important statement, folks. Some people ask, well, how can you say that you have eternal salvation? Jesus has an eternal priesthood. He lives today interceding for us on our behalf. Those who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we can have assurance of salvation because Jesus always lives to intercede for us, even though we still sin, right? We sin, and it's as though Jesus says, I covered that sin on the cross. There's nothing that the adversary can say against us. So we're going to conclude really quickly about what this means for us and maybe get into a little bit of next week's sermon. But I kind of summarize by saying that Melchizedek's priestly order, which symbolically represents Jesus as our high priest, is better in every way than the Levitical priesthood. It's better in every way. So we can add that to our list. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament law. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the Levitical priesthood. Why would anyone want to leave Jesus? That's the question that we have, right? And yet we see people who do want to leave Jesus, and we need to be praying for them. So I want to close you with one verse from 
what we'll be reading next week because it's such a phenomenal verse and it kind of encapsulates why this priesthood of Jesus is so critical to us. It's verse 25 of chapter 7. It says, Consequently, he, speaking about Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me read that again. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, or another translation, he is able to save forever those who draw, to, draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. What a wonderful Savior. Amen? Amen. What a wonderful Savior we have that he has purchased everything that we need for salvation and that we get none of the credit and he gets all of the glory. Let's praise our Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's not only our Savior, but that he is our high priest, that he intercedes with God on our behalf. And even when we sin, yes, we are to repent of that sin, but he advocates for our cause. And he goes to the Father, and basically he says, I have covered that sin. I have died for that sin. And God the Father then pronounces that I have been justified, that I am clean. Thank you so much for this. Help us to gain a, a greater understanding of this as we think about it throughout the week. Help us to surrender our lives fully to you and not to hold anything back. Help us to not drift away in our salvation or neglect our salvation or be sluggish in our salvation, but have a white hot fire inside that just cannot keep from coming out and praising Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.